This episode is brought to you by Feast Day City. Feast Day City. Feast Day City. At Feast Day City, they have everything you need for your upcoming celebration. Colored sand, rose petals, perfumed candles, sedan chairs, picnic wear with pictures of celestial patrons being slaughtered, balloons. They have all the standard musical instruments to keep the festivities going. Flutes, rebecks, trumpets, Ophicleides. At Feast Day City, you rent from an extensive choice of practical illusions of persons being ritually gored, beheading illusions, piercing with arrows, eaten by wild beasts, burned alive, drawn and quartered, thrown from cliffs. Let's face it, your feast day is coming up and you do not want to disappoint the children. And use promo code Reread one word to get 10% off a completely outfitted feast day with Night of Vigil Fun Pack. 8x10 photos with the patron impersonator are extra. Thank you, Feast Day City, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi. Say, before we get started... Just a little bit of a note so that you know that we know what's going on. During this episode, I'm not sure why, but Craig's mic had some continuous but intermittent popping. And also when we were doing the errata and comments, it appears my mic wasn't on because I sound like I was talking to him through two soup cans with a string attached. There's nothing to be done about it. I can't remove the popping. I hope it doesn't spoil anyone's ability to enjoy this episode because, frankly, listening back on it, we really had a lot of fun doing it. Anyway, onward with the episode. So, Craig, we didn't get a lot of corrections this time. I know. Relatively. I know. Relatively. I I suppose people were feeling too festive and charitable to put us (laughs) in our place. Fortunately, however, Stephen Frug was willing to play the much-needed role of Krampus complete with thrashing switches and sacks for naughty podcasters <laughs> during our holiday season. You will run of a lot, try to break me, make me strong. You will run of a lot, try to break me, make me strong. Regarding our discussion on how much Thecla feels or doesn't feel for Severian, Stephen responded on the Facebook page, noting that you, Craig, pointed out that if Thecla hadn't really loved Severian, that perhaps he would have remembered that once he was remembering her life. Mm -hmm. And Stephen says that we have the answer to that and proffers in Cloth of the Conciliator when Severian first takes the analeptic Alzabo from Thecla and says, I learned that I had been much more to her than I had ever guessed. He says, quote, in the context of the passage, I think it clearly means that not only did she love him, 
but she did more than he guessed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Very good point. More than he would guess. Good. Centrally applicable text. No discussion of Severian and Thecla's feelings are complete without that. What do you think, Greg? Um, yeah, and that makes sense, I think, because even though we were talking about the ways that she might be manipulating him, that's really in that first meeting. And over the long term, it doesn't take away from the fact that she could still be sort of manipulative if she really did come to have really strong feelings for him over time. It's certainly the, the sort of image of Thecla that we were building would, I feel like, be sophisticated enough to hold both of those at once. You know, she could well be doing both things, um, and that would be a smart thing for her to do. Yeah, so I think he's right that definitely we do know that later, but I don't think it necessarily, especially in that long first encounter chapter, you know, there's that's before they really had a chance to get to know each other at yeah. all. Well, you know, I mean, he meant more to her than he thought or could have guessed. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even married people's relationship, a very good marriage is one of constant politicking and diplomacy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, does that mean love or the right kind of love? I don't know. I just think their relationship strikes me as complicated. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. No matter what we say about it, you can't get away from the fact that the entire time she was alive, their relationship was prisoner and jailkeeper, you know, and warden basically. So, so, you know, nothing, no matter how sincere her feelings were, that fact is always there. And I don't think it's, it's, it it definitely colors everything. Maybe it makes it more special if she did in fact have true feelings. And if he can actually tell that, yeah, they were sincere and not just some sort of Stockholm syndrome, you know, it could have had been that, but I, I feel like, you know, even if he is saying, yeah, that that she really did have some sincere feelings for him. I mean, Severian certainly had sincere feelings for her, regardless of whatever fantasy he might have been projecting. So, but still, even even with that, there's still that manipulator attitude, I think, that that is definitely still part of it. And it doesn't necessarily, it's it's not an either or kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, Stephen interjects on something else we were talking about. On a related minor point, you say, or maybe just imply, at some point, that if Thecla knows the nature of the autark, then it's common knowledge. And if it's not, she doesn't. But one can easily imagine that a, quote, member of the inner circle of concubines closest to the autark, unquote, one of the maybe 20 could easily know, even if it was not widely known. And, well, that's certainly true. Yeah, that seems a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Editing this episode, I also noted that I gave the impression that it must be either or, when in fact, it might only be an issue of asynchronous information. Yeah. Actually, their conversation regarding the Autark is not like anyone else, suggests that she has extra knowledge about the Autark and she knows it's classified. Yeah. And it definitely seems once we know more about how the house absolute runs, it's a weird place. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, who knows how many people actually interact regularly and see different things. You know, there may be some areas where seeing the autark and seeing an area are very commonplace and other people who may have lived there their whole life may only see them just a little bit. I mean, it's yeah. just a, it's a strange. Situation. And there might be a lot of people who interact with them a lot and don't even realize it. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Stephen also takes issue with our implication that, quote, the whole purpose of the autark is to take the test and bring the new son, and his rule is at best a byproduct of that or a way of passing the time or something, unquote. 
Stevens says, I see it as the other way around. I think the powers that be selected the autarch because it was the powerful ruler of a section of Earth, and that the autarchy as an institution is separate from the test, which is supervened on it. So I think what he's saying, in other words, is that he supposes the High Rose came upon a nation with a monarchical system that chose its monarch and gave him the memories of other monarchical rulers. You know, I don't know. It might be. Could be, yeah. I'm trying to imagine the implications of that, and I'll have to think about it. Really. Yeah. So the one thing that actually can makes me feel like the Autark is a project that's more of a conspiratorial thing, has to do more with Aniri and the fact that he's around through multiple Autarchs. And, you know, we find out later in Earth that he's sort of part of a Hyro faction that's that's working through that. And we'll work on the, the details of that later. But um, but that's one of the main things that, that I feel like the Autarchy is, as this sort of weird project is set up to always be kind of manipulated by things. And we also find out that Aniri is actually like in charge of the government in different ways too. So it's sort of like, it, it just gives the impression that there's all these strings being pulled behind the scenes over that. And also just sort of the idea of the autarky in general, like why, if it was just a sort of monarchical society, how Severian gets chosen to be the autarch is weird and random, right? <laughs> like it's 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 not like a system that really makes a whole lot of sense because they they take a beekeeper and then he becomes one and then they take mm -hmm. this random torturer kid and he becomes one. Whereas it seems more like the way that Wolf sets up the story once we find out a lot more that's going on is that they pick different people who seem like they might be worthy of something else and not necessarily just based on their, you know, leadership skills or something. Well, I'm not, I'm maybe about that. I'm not so sure about that. I it's hard to believe in all those, you know, 10,000 years that nobody like Vodalus was ever in a position to kill the autarch and, and seize the, the autarchy. So in that case, you might want to think that it must be something manipulated. Yeah. But if that were the case, you know, why would you have had children as autarch? That sounds pretty risky. <laughs> so, yeah. it's, uh, so in that case, it feels to me like it must be sort of random generally unless yeah. uh, except in exceptional circumstances but yeah i don't otherwise i don't think the way the autark system is set up makes much sense as a form of government <laughs> like i don't <laughs> i don't really feel like we're getting some sort of sense from wolf that actually this is you know a, a monarchical government and he's talking about the virtues of monarchy or something i don't think that's really going on here it only seems sustainable if you have a colonial force that operates a figurehead for them. Right. But also something perhaps a, well, a conciliator, like a mediator yep. between the, the people of the Commonwealth and the Hyros yeah. that stand behind him. It, it's still an interesting question. So I think that's something we should probably uh, hold off until we get, because there are points where Severian makes, you know, all kinds of weird little political philosophical asides course mm -hmm. the end of shadow where malrubius sort of quizzes severian and his mental state based through a kind of what's the best form of leadership which is i think really going something else but those might be better places to to talk about that issue well there's the conversation with syriaca uh, yes once again yeah mm -hmm. lots, lots of opportunities to talk about yeah what the real <laughs> yeah overall discussion yeah. is finally stephen 
also doubts that the term folio implies a religious book. He notes that non-religious books can be folios, which is true. He offers, as an example, the first folio of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Which he's, he says, and it's right, that if you hear the term folio, it's usually because you've heard of Shakespeare's folio. Those are the, the first initial yeah. publications of the plays. We're in the first folio or the second. However, I think in context of the idiom, flowers are better theology than folios, Severian. I think this implies that in the Commonwealth, the term folio implies a religious book. It seems to. And plus just the way that the, the sort of size of books <laughs> seems to indicate different things from the four that he gets. Yeah, the, 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 the larger the book, the more sort of <laughs> political or holy or something, it seems to no. me. So even though it seems that then the real wisdom is in the small little brown book, but yeah, but right. who knows? Well, Stephen, thank you for providing the tough love that this podcast is. <laughs> It really means a lot more than a book full of attaboys. <laughs> um, Mike Benowitz, son of Wits, had a comment regarding our conversation on the Commonwealth's official religion. He mentions the official prayer during executions and the feast days of the saints. And he says something I connected to for an entirely different reason. He says, since the conciliator is a Christ figure, It seems that this is a distant analog reawakening of a quasi-Christian theology. I would assume this is something that kept popping up like wild roses during Typhon's era and the aftermath. Well, you know, we've talked about how long in the future this is. Is it 10,000 years in the future, 100,000, a million? Wolf has actually implied that much. There's things to imply any of these. but there is an argument for why things that we recognize could still exist in this distant future, so far in the future. Some things just maybe keep being reborn from the ashes and destroyed again and again. Nessus, for example, if it's Buenos Aires and the Guile is the Uruguay River, well, perhaps Buenos Aires was abandoned for tens of or hundreds of millennia yeah. And then rediscovered when people start digging up the landscape for new supplies and discover the city, you know, and sort of work out the name, retro cool. And then <laughs> things are destroyed, lost, rediscovered all the time. That's kind of a mini theme yeah. in the whole solar cycle. So, you know, really cool. Thanks, Mike. Incidentally, Nigel is still mining great expectations for gold. Which I love. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm I do too. thrilled with that. He noted that the blacksmith journeyman Orlick has a nickname for Pip, Wolf. I suppose then that it would be impossible that Gene Wolf would not work this novel into some story. <laughs> Speaking of Nigel Craig, remember in chapter nine, we were pretty exasperated, still are, about the autarch's pretense to just mm-hmm. love running a brothel mm-hmm. as the primary duty of his supreme executive position. Nigel mounted a defense of why it's credible in this novel. He said, Wolf's ascetic is to present us with situations in which characters defend their actions or something in which they participate on grounds which are perfectly reasonable because of who they are and where and when they live, but would be completely absurd or indefensible to the reader. In this ascetic, the more extreme, vile, 
or absurd the position the character takes, the better the author has succeeded. The bizarreness of the argument is part of the point, and the author delights in constructing the cultural situations in which these conversations take place, and the twisted logic, which, at least to the speaker, justifies their conduct. As an example, he offered the Roman poet Ovid's take on Greek myths, which Nigel thinks, based on his delivery, quote, already seemed absurd and ludicrous to the Roman mind. He said Ovid, quote, takes much more time and devotes far more poetic resources to speech by the characters in the stories in which they justify their weird behavior. Quote, I've fallen in love with a bull. What could be more natural? <laughs> Can't you see what a handsome bull it is? Quick, someone build me a wooden full-size replica of a cow for me to lie in, etc., etc. He says he once proffered this idea to Gene Wolfe, to which he laughed in a way that to Nigel could have meant anything. Well, if you thought a supreme dictator of a major military force retreating to one of the seediest brothels in his country to run it every night is weird, does Wolf have a chapter for you here <laughs> in chapter 11, The Feast? So without further ceremony, let's get on to the ceremony. All right. Chapter 11, The Feast. I mean, there are, there are other chapters that are strange in very subtle ways. They're strange in very obvious ways, but really kind of more like peculiar. In this one, Wolf is really letting his freak flag fly. He's yep. just, oh, by the way, there's a lot going on here, and I'm not telling you what it is. Mm -hmm. And we have dreams. We've got some classic Wolf dream, dream nests oh, yeah. going on. So um, maybe, 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's the dream, dreaminess. Whether or not it's actual dreams is a question. Yeah. Okay. So this is the the big day. This is Severian's elevation. This is the feast of Saint Catherine, or not? They don't say Saint Catherine, is it? It's uh, Holy Catherine. Yeah. Let's see, Holy Catherine's yeah. Day. It occurs in the fading of winter. Uh, well, currently it occurs on November twenty fifth. So you know, really nothing has changed in the distant mm -hmm. future. Same time of year. And he uses the phrase, then do we make merry, which that's exactly how so many people think about Dickens and Christmas Carol is like, we make merry on that day. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's Severian's it's Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And, and to, to use that phrase definitely seems like, you know, this is their, their big fun holiday. I shall honor Holy Catherine's day every day of my life. I promise. <laughs> so this is how it goes. During the ceremony, the journeymen perform the sword dance in procession, leaping and fantastic. Notice he never calls it the Madachin dance. Right. I, I wonder if Severian knows the root of that word. Also, it is never mentioned when they do this dance. Right. He says it's in procession. So, you know, maybe it happens before they enter the chapel or during the feast would also be a convenient place. Like, you know, the dance at the wedding reception mm -hmm. or something. And when Alton had done his thing, he talks about a procession through the city, right? He talks about how people would, would like the booksellers would come out and, and you know, salute them mm -hmm. and things like that. Here, though, I don't, I would guess it's not outside. I mean, perhaps it's through a small court, maybe, but 
He just doesn't say. Well, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, but the, the masters arrive in a divan, you mm-hmm. know, he, they're carried. So maybe they do do a procession through the streets. Maybe that's where it happens. Yeah. It is. I got to admit, it's frustrating that, like we said, the Madison Tower talks about this sword dance. If you know that that's what it is, you're sort of expecting a lot here. But then literally all we get is the journeyman perform the sword dance in procession, leaping in fantastic. That's it. That's what we get yeah. of the sword dance. That's all our description. Right. That and that the traditional dessert is Catherine cake. So, yeah. Anyway, it seems that if you don't have business inside the Citadel, you aren't allowed to be there. Even if your guild operates outside the Citadel walls, the members inside the keep have to keep their own career paths. There are 135 guilds that include members that work inside the Citadel. Now, if you don't have enough members inside the Citadel to hold a ceremony by yourself, then you hold your ceremony in Nessus with the members of your guild that are out there. He names the curators as being, you know, one like that. So maybe Alton and Kibby and maybe Rudison are in fact the only curators mm-hmm. working inside the Citadel, which is really weird. Yeah. We do know there's the one guy eventually in who's sitting in the front of the um the gardens who says he's one of the curators. Right. Has yeah. a very different job. He's not a librarian. It, well, if there are enough guild members working inside the Citadel, they have their feast alone in the old ruined chapel in the Citadel in the Grand Court. Mm-hmm. Why is it ruined? It seems that everyone uses the chapel, but no one is in charge of maintaining it. He says that the pews are broken. I don't know if they're smashed or just rotted. There's barely a roof. The soldiers have their feast on Hadrian's Day. The Roman calendar puts this in March 4th, but so much of this culture seems to follow the Byzantine Greek traditions. And so Hadrian's day is in August. St. Hadrian was a Roman soldier who converted and was martyred in 306 AD. The matrosses, that's the, the artillery, they have it on Barbara's day. Barbara was beheaded by her father and then he was struck dead by lightning on the way home. So that's kind of appropriate. The witches have theirs on Mag's Day. Now, there is no St. Mag, so I assume we're talking about St. Magdalene. That day is in July. And, you know, St. Mag, you know, that that does sound a little more witchy, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, the the Madison Tower, the, the masters are responsible for putting up a thousand perfumed candles in the chapel, and it takes weeks to prepare for it. Mm-hmm. The feasts have three categories, lofty, lesser, and least. Lofty is when a journeyman becomes a master, lesser when at least one apprentice becomes a journeyman, and least when no one gets elevated. This is going to be a lesser feast. Yeah. Most of the guild's feasts attract other people in the Citadel. So, you know, it's a big deal. They try to attract as many people to their feasts as they can. He says, by pageantry and wonders and free food and drink. But no one comes to the torturer's feast. No one has for over 300 years. The last time, so the story goes, a lieutenant in the guard came on a bet. And I always love this story. <laughs> this, is, I, this is so funny, I think. Well, he says there are lots of different stories about what happened to him. Halloween-type stories, that they made him sit at the table in a chair of red-hot iron, you know, that kind of thing. As they tell the story in the tower, though, 
They welcomed him and they fed him well, but he expected them to sit around talking shop about torture or making new tortures or grousing about people who died too soon and couldn't be tortured. When they didn't, he got nervous that they were plotting against him. So he stress ate and he drank too much. And then when he got back home, he fell in his head and he was debilitated mentally and physically for the rest of his life in constant pain. Eventually he blew his head off. So do they have gunpowder in this world? I don't remember any mention of it. Are all firearms just energy weapons? It seems like I don't remember. Although I, oh shoot, they have the crossbows, but are there gunpowder? If there is, someone will remind us. Anyway, no outsiders come to the chapel on Holy Catherine's Day. Right. But they prepare as if everyone is coming. They make a bigger deal of it, in fact, because they know a lot of people are watching. Wolf loves to talk about food and parties. G.R.R. Martin learned that from him. So I'll read this part. Outside the chapel are wines burn like gems in the light of a hundred flambeaux. Our beeves steam and wallow in ponds of gravy, rolling baked lemon eyes, capybaras and agoutis poised in the stances of life and bearing fur in which toasted coconut mingles with their own flayed skin. Clamber on logs of ham and scale boulders in new baked bread. Uh, of course, you know, capybaras and agoutis, yeah, you can look those up. They're common animals in South America. The journeymen make paths of pattern-colored sand that's laid grain by grain to make murals in the traditions of the guilds. And then the two masters are carried on sedan chairs that are circled in curtains that are made of blossoms. And that's a tradition specifically Buddhist tradition, but also in certain Hindu rituals. Then they walk on those paths of sand, immediately destroying the pictures. And the Buddhist one in particular, I remember, and I believe it was Tibetan, but specifically to make it be a beautiful thing that's immediately destroyed to sort of emphasize the the, the passing of everything, the impermanence. Really? I didn't know that. When the masters enter the chapel, there's a big spiked wheel, a young girl and a sword. The apprentices haul the wheel out of one of the top rooms of the tower and set it up every year. Remember, that's where they store the various odds and ends, but just below the top floor where the gunnery room and the radios are. A sword is fake. It's made to look like a real headsman's blade from five or six feet away. Mm -hmm. It's just a wooden stick, though, in an old sword hilt. It's covered in metal foil. Now we come to the girl. Zavarian calls her a maid, which means she is visibly young. Let me tell you, young weed hopper, the theories that have been spun about this maid go on and on. And yet we don't have any evidence we'll ever see her after this moment. She says only the lines she's instructed to, and then we never see her again. But there is a good reason for all this speculation, because it's weird. Right. We, let's read what Severian says about her. He says, of the maid, I can tell you nothing. And then he tells us what he knows. Every year, it's the same girl. And every year, she is unchanged from the year 
before. Or it seems to be. Or seems to be. But, you know, he's supposed to be Severian of the great memory. So I don't know. Yeah, he does throw in things like, um, you know, founder in her place. And so far as I could judge, unchanged. Yeah. So he remembers her from the earliest feasts yep. that he can remember. Yep. And then when he got older, he began to assume that she was one of the witches, which for some reason that's not stated here was considered highly disrespectful. Right. And the way he phrased that the, the sentence there, when I grew a year older, I knew such disrespect would not be tolerated. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming he means that the witches wouldn't take that disrespect of just acting in someone else's servant. But I, Oh, play but i also i thought it was the other way i thought was thinking well that's the thing would these guys think it was disrespectful to have a witch come in yeah do this this is one of those lines that just either way you take it it speaks to some still sort of grudge between the witches Mm. and the the torturers well severian speculates maybe she was a servant from some remote part of the citadel Maybe she lived in Nessus and they paid her to take part or she had some connection to the guild and agreed to take part I only know that each feast found her in her place. And so far as I could judge, unchanged. So how did she look? Tall and slender, but not as tall or slender as Thecla. Well, we know Thecla was as tall as a normal woman when she was 14. So, you know, maybe she is a young exultant, but she's not as slender as Thecla. So, you know, maybe not. He says specifically, Dark of complexion, dark of eye, raven hair. Keep that in mind because I'm going to reference it later. And let's just remind, just in order to think about those theories, remember that Severian is pale, pale, pale skin. Yes. compares pale to him, but dark raven black hair. Right. Hers was such a face as I have never seen elsewhere, like a pool of pure water found in the midst of a wood. What the heck? does that mean right take a minute and kind of think you've got a pool of water which again anytime water comes up in this book just like the sun of course you need to start thinking about other places that those are important how do they work symbolically so a pool of water water is what will give life to things right that it's a renewal you know severian almost drowns but he also gets resurrected I'm, i'm thinking too of how typhon talks later about, you know, how I was, you know, life is about being wet. And he's like, I was <laughs> dry and now I'm drunk and I'm, you know, I'm back to life. So water is always something that can bring new life, even if it destroys other things. But this pool of pure water is wonderful. And then also being found in the midst of a wood. We've also just come from the chapter where Severian said of the painting that he wanted to take it somewhere sacred. And that sacred place seemed to be in the middle of a forest. And to, to take it, well, pure water on the moon. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I don't know. I can't try and can't think of what physically it might mean. A clear complexion. Well, you know that's nice, but it's not unique. Yeah, I think it's. I don't know if he's actually describing something physical about her here as more the the feeling of purity and and life givingness. Now, yeah, yeah. Now, just to just to sort of anticipate some of the theories. I mean, a lot of them, we'll just say it now because it makes things easier. A lot of them think that this is Severian's mother. To associate her face with a pool of water, again, that's something that would be giving him, you know, literally giving him birth. You know, the midst of the wood. Think of the green man and how Ushas eventually is going to be this place where people are green. (laughs) And there's (laughs) that's sort of like the new life that's come. In some ways, there might be connections there. 
to Severian having come from this, this sort of place of life, of greenness, a kind of, you know, a little bit of an Eden, or yeah. at least things here associated kind of with what Eden would be like. Another connection you could make there, the Vedic Fountain. Um, when Severian sees, goes to the Vatic Fountain in the House Azure, he sees it right after coming through a little wooden path. Um, mm. and, and he talks about how he's in the trees and he, he comes up and sees the fountain. And that's where he has, you know, his momentary vision of more symbols showing him his, you know, his destiny and his fate. So again, you know, water in a wood is something that's really important at that point yeah. as well. So those are just some possible connections. You know, all he says right here is that, you know, her face was like one I've never seen anywhere else, <laughs> a pool of water in a wood. But it's so deliberately chosen that, to me, I have to think of those other things. You're right. Um, and that works so well. Whether or not she actually is his mother, that symbol right there works so well. <laughs> like, even if we can't figure out the, the plot of it, to immediately bring those symbols in with her, that's one right. thing that seems to support it. To me. A Severian also mentions a journeyman named Gildas that mm -hmm. was captain of the apprentices when he was young. Now, St. Gildas brought a woman back to life whose husband had killed her. She, he, he beheaded her. Uh, Gildas put her head back on her shoulders and brought her back to life. She tried unsuccessfully to escape through some tunnels. And I guess that'll come up in a bit. So, you know, remember to keep that in mind. This girl is going to play Holy Catherine in the ceremony. Now, I think this girl is weird. And... Yeah, not as easy to explain as a lot of people think, but, but since understanding her, if we do understand her is probably going to ensure that we understand the part she plays here. So, you know, as hard as this is for me, let's forgo any curiositous earthus items about her until the very end. Okay. All right. So this girl, she's part of a deliberate tableau, the sword behind it, the girl behind it, the wheel. And as most people know, the background of this ceremony is the story of the martyrdom of St. Catherine mm -hmm. of Alexandria. Um, briefly, according to the story, Catherine lived in Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria was and is a major port city that still exists today in the Mediterranean, northwest of Cairo. She became a Christian after receiving a vision of Mary and the baby Jesus. The iconography of Mary and the infant Jesus is important in ancient Alexandrian Christianity. She was martyred at the orders of Emperor Maxentius, who was eventually defeated by Constantine I. He was also, by the way, married to Valeria Maximilla, and they had twin ah. sons. So let the theory spinning begin. She debated 50 pagan philosophers in front of the emperor who were convinced by her and declared themselves Christians and were immediately put to death. She was whipped until the whole of her body was covered in wounds and then imprisoned. The emperor sentenced her to be starved, but angels tended to her wounds and she was fed by a dove or doves. This lasted 12 days and people were converting based on her witness, including the emperor's wife. And they were all put to death. The emperor's wife part, at least, is demonstrably untrue. When her cell was opened, it was filled with a bright light and the smell of perfume. I assume this is the purpose of the perfume candles. She came out looking better than she went in. So the emperor offered her marriage, but she refused. 
she was a consecrated virgin. As a 19th century chronicler related, the emperor ordered her to be executed by a spiked wheel, but she touched the wheel and it fell to pieces. It did not burst into roses. I haven't found any non-Wolfian mention of that. If anyone does, I'd love to hear it. So the emperor ordered her to be executed. The headsman hesitated, so she urged him to do his duty. But Catherine was so pure that she didn't bleed blood, only some milky substance. Then angels carried her body away to the highest mountain in Egypt, which is now called Mount St. Catherine, or Gabal Katrina in Arabic. Excuse my non-Arabic. Her grave was supposedly found in the ninth century and relics collected. And then her veneration really took off. Uh, personally, I'm skeptical of any strong claim that there's no historicity to her. And I'm not even talking about Hypatia either. There's really not a lot of parallels to that story of injustice, though. Uh, there was a young, wealthy girl in Alexandria that was mentioned by the church historian Eusebius who rejected the advances of the sub-emperor Maximilus II. This happened about 10 years later than uh, Catherine's supposed execution. He had her property confiscated and exiled her. That, I personally suspect, is the, the nugget of this story. And a lot of other elements just got added to it. The image of the wheel is, really has cosmic mythical elements to it, so that I think it really attracted Wolf. Uh, the name Catherine could have originally been a title, meaning pure, or there could have been some pagan entity that worked its way into her story. Now, historically, the spiked wheel would be rolled over the victim to break her bones, thus the spikes. Then after her death, she'd be strapped to the wheel like a crucifixion. Then her body would be decapitated. But Wolf seemed to imagine that she would be strapped to the wheel and then spun to death. That's an elaborate concept, but really more of a merciful execution than a cruel torture. In Castle of the Otter, he described it as being put to sleep. Perhaps he had a Catherine's Wheel fireworks display in mind. It's a device that spins around as fireworks go off. Mm -hmm. And that would explain the association with roses. Yeah. And when I, I do know when I first read it that when they described the roses, that was how I knew a Catherine wheel the most was from the fireworks. And so that was the first thing that stuck in my mind about that. Yeah. Perhaps the two did become conflated in Severian's world over time. The Catherine's wheel symbol, now this is really good, is a symbol for pilgrims. In the 15th century France, religious pilgrims would wear badges with spiked uh, wagon wheel called the Catherine's wheel. Mm -hmm. And I like this because doorway symbols like the god Janus, like mistletoe, like myrtle, like rowan trees tend to also be symbols of travelers and colonists for complicated reasons. Yep. So Catherine, by a couple steps, is associated with Father Aniri, who, as we discussed in our talk with Nigel Price, right. is a Janus figure, and also with rowan trees, which are going to come up in a couple of years. Uh, which are in turn associated with roses. And it works too, just with the name seekers for truth and penitence. That if this is, if she is for pilgrims, then, you know, the seekers are the pilgrims are seekers that works mm -hmm. for that part. Uh, Catherine is the patron saint of anyone who makes wheels or works with one like potters of people who argue for a living like apologists or jurists or educators, Craig, 
also of archivists too, for some reason. Curiously, she's the patron saint of hat makers. <laughs> and I think that's peculiar because she's a saint that, you know, didn't need one. <laughs> that's bad. but I'm... It's my first thought. <laughs> <laughs> so the ritual begins. The girl playing Catherine would stand quietly, Master Palamon, who's the oldest of the masters. So it's his job to explain the founding of the guild, which Severian does not detail, and also of the guild's precursors uh, before its founding, quote, before the ice came. I think this means that there has been an ice age between their time and ours, right? That's what it seems like, yeah. yeah. I know that there are alternate readings, but I think this is the most credible to say that there was an ice age. The history telling details change every year based on whatever uh, Palamon has been reading most recently. One tiny thing that I like about that part, there is some tradition going on here, but there's also Palamon reasoning or still kind of in the process of figuring things out. That goes very much to that sense I got of Alton's library about how little connection and organization they have to all their learning in this world. Mm -hmm. but even though Palamon is a very educated person, he's supposed to be teaching the history, but the history changes every year. And you could see that as development, but it could also be, you know, vagaries of what he's been reading. And the way, the way Severian describes it is just, yeah, what was his latest interesting idea uh, about the guild, about yeah. their very own guild. There's probably conf conflicting stories either way. Yeah. And, and he's figuring it out as he goes through. Yeah. And so it's, it's told there just as a kind of little joke, but if you think about what that means for the larger world, yeah, this is, they have so lost touch with their, their history mm -hmm. that it's changing all the time. Even in the, even in the moments where they're supposedly reenacting a single ritual, it's, it's they're out of touch with the yeah the real meaning of the roots. So much of the history they have around them is has become myth, and things including things that influence them every day. Right, and maybe that's not so different from us. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> then they all sing the guild hymn, the fearful song. Catherine doesn't sing; it's only sung one day a year, and then they all pray, and then the masters and some journeymen begin to tell the tale of her legend. There's a ritual to this telling. At some parts, one person speaks. At other parts, they all chant in unison. At other parts, two people speak in a kind of harmony, while you know other participants play flutes that they had personally carved from thigh bones. Or at other times, the three-stringed rebec that shrieks like a man. <laughs> <laughs> that thing about thigh bones, is it are we supposed to assume there that that's from people that they've tortured or? Well, who else? You... Well, that's what I wonder. Like, do they just kind of wander around <laughs> the necropolis and find one or two? And uh, yeah. Well, that's a good point. They, they may be, you know, if you go down to the potters section, there may be some that have already risen to the yeah. top. They may not have necessarily extracted a thigh bone uh, <laughs> before they buried them, but that doesn't sound, uh, you know, unlikely for these guys. It's from a full boot, a full boot that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they won't need this. No, it's a, it's a gruesome image there. Uh, a rebec, by the way, is a kind of medieval fiddle-like instrument played with a bow. Finally, at the part where Catherine is condemned by Maxentius, four journeymen wearing their masks rush out and grab her. Now she struggles and screams. I'll, uh, this is what Severian says. But as they bore toward her, 
The wheel appeared to blur and change. In the light of the candles, it seemed at first that serpents, green pythons with jeweled heads of scarlet, citrine, and white writhed from it. Um, red, yellow, white. Then it was seen that these were flowers, roses in the bud. When the maid was but a step away, they bloomed. So, Severian is making no bones that this is a kind of practical mm. illusion. The flowers are made from paper and were hidden inside the wheel. The journeymen pretend to pull away from her in fear. Gerloise, Palamon, and the others chant together, playing the voice of the Emperor Maxentius, telling them to keep on. Now it's Severian's turn. Although he never mentions it, there must have been frequent practice sessions to make sure he knew what to do and what to expect. He steps forward as an apprentice, no mask, and says, Resistance avails nothing. You are to be broken on the wheel, but we would do you no further indignity. Then the girl touches the wheel, and it collapses, clattering to the floor. The roses are gone. Gerloise, Palamon, and the journeyman chant as Maxentius, Behead her. Severian picks up the sword. It's only wood, but he says it's really heavy. She kneels in front of him, and he says, You are a counselor of omniscience. And then he says, Though I must slay you, I beg you to spare my life. Now the girl speaks for the first time. Strike and fear not. He raises the sword. It is really heavy. Severian worries for a second that it will, you know, quote, overbalance him. Now, here's something about his memory and the way it might work. This is this memory of this event, standing before Catherine with his wooden sword. That's what he remembers. He says, when I think back on this time, it is that moment I recall first. To remember more, I must work forward or backward from that. In memory, it seems to me, I stand always so in gray shirt and ragged trousers with the blade poised above my head. While I raised it, I was an apprentice. When it descended, I would be a journeyman of the Order of Seekers for Truth and Penitence. It is our rule that the executioner must stand between the victim and the light. The maid's head lay in shadow on the block. I knew that the sword in falling would do her no harm. I would direct it to one side, tripping an ingenious mechanism that would elevate a wax head smeared with blood, while the maid draped her own with a fulgin cloth. Still, I hesitated to give the blow. So she spoke again from the floor at my feet. Her voice seemed to ring in my ears, strike and fear not. With such strength as I was capable of, I sent the false blade down. Now this next part sometimes strikes people as significant. For an instant, it seemed to me that it met resistance, and then it thudded into the block, which fell in two. I assume the resistance is another practical effect, but some have argued that Severian might have actually been tricked to actually beheading her. Right. And another thing that people point out with that, too, is when he says that the sword seemed heavier than it should have. Because he says before, it's mm -hmm. just a decorated piece of wood. But then when he steps up there, he says it seems really heavy. Now, that would be really easily 
thinking, oh, he's nervous. And so everything seems more significant or different or, you know, heavier than it should because he's, you know, maybe shaky and, and just so out of it. But those could also be suggestions that for his ceremony, something different was going to happen. But mm -hmm. it's, it's never presented as fact, but he does leave those two little suggestions in there. Yes. This is what Wolf does to us. Severian goes on. He says, the maid's head, all bloody, tumbled forward toward the watching brothers. Master Gerluise lifted it by the hair, and Master Palamon cupped his left hand to receive the blood. With this our chrism, remember a chrism means anointing, mm -hmm. like an anointing oil. With this our chrism, I anoint you, Severian, our brother forever. His index finger traced the mark upon my forehead. The mark? <laughs> yeah. So be it, said Master Gerluise, and all the journeymen save I. The maid stood. I knew even as I watched her that her head was only concealed in the cloth, but it seemed there was nothing there. I felt dizzy and tired. She took the wax head from Master Gerluise and pretended to replace it on her shoulders, slipping it by some slight into the fulgen cloth then standing before us, radiant and whole, I knelt before her and the others withdrew. So one note here that if this is where it gets complicated again, where if you're thinking or if you're trying to play with the theory that he actually did kill her, well, apparently she still stood up and grabbed the head and put it back on her shoulders, which if that <laughs> did happen, this would be the weirdest resurrection probably that we see in the whole book because <laughs> usually, right, it's it's... Yeah. sort of bringing someone who's just died back to life, but never do we see an animate corpse then walk over and. Right. So the girl raises the sword. The blade is quote bloody now from some contact with the wax. She says, you are of the torturers and taps the blade on either of his shoulders and puts the torturer's mask on his face. She raises him to his feet. Drott and Rosha lift him on their shoulders and carry him down the center ch chapel aisle. Everyone cheers and shouts and outside everyone lights fireworks. They, they throw fireworks and shoot red, yellow, and green rockets at the chapel. Here we learn that the chapel is at least a thousand years old. At this signal, the great keep fires one of their guns into the sky. It seems to be an energy weapon because he says it splits the night. Oh, yeah. And it looks like this ceremony took place in the late afternoon or evening because it's dark now. Now they all eat. And Severian sits at the head of the table with Palamon and Gerlois at either side. He drinks too much. He says he's never been able to hold his beer. He, he's cheered and toasted. He talks about that girl again. What became of the maid, I do not know. She disappeared as she has each Catherine's day I can remember. I have not seen her again. So, Craig, this seems very hard for me to believe, that he doesn't know what became of this girl. Whoever you think she is, I'm very disinclined to, to ever say that Severian is straight up lying. But the claim that Severian never looked into this mysterious girl after he became Autark is just not credible to me. Well, he um, may never have actually seen her again, but he might have tried to find out who she was. You know, by the time he's Autark, that's granted a couple years later after this. 
Um, but yeah, so I don't think this would be one of those places where it would be lying by omission, where he's probably, it's literally true, probably, that he never saw her again. And what became of her? I guess it's possible he doesn't know what became of her. Yeah. But what became of her, yeah, yeah. So that, you know, I do not know. The other one thing about that line, too, is, okay, so there is a scene at the end of Earth of the New Sun where Severian sees a hallway and sees a young girl being dragged, sort of kicking and screaming somewhere. Some people wonder if that is Catherine being forced. And, you know, he's sort of he's gone through the time travel and done mm -hmm. odd things at that time. And they wonder if that's Catherine being dragged to this last one, this last ceremony. In that case, it would be a lie here that he hasn't seen her again. It would also be weird if that was actually her, that she seems like she's kicking and screaming in that part. But here she's, you know, just participating in the ritual, doing everything she's supposed to do. So, yeah. So, but that's just one possibility that I know comes up. But yeah, so yeah as far as the rest of it, like, did he look into her? Well, that's another question about, we think, um, and many people think that she's important, but for Severian then to flat out say, I don't know what happened to her and I never saw her. Maybe that means that she wasn't important. Um, but <laughs> yeah. also, but you can also look at exactly the way he says it. He says, what became of her? I don't know. That doesn't mean who she actually was. I don't know. It just means well, what she ended up doing after this. I don't know. And he might not have actually seen her again, but he might've figured out who she was. He might've done all kinds of talking about her and discovering <laughs> and whatnot. And those things would still be true. You know, and so if you, if you want to look at it that way. That's true. He doesn't remember going to bed again. He can't remember stuff. He's too empowered to have acknowledged at the time. I don't think this is a problem, but Severian supposes that he must have passed out and was carried to bed. He actually goes out of his way to clarify this. Those who drink much have told me that they sometimes forget all that befell them in the latter part of the night. And perhaps it was so with me, but I think it more likely that I who never forget anything who, if I may, for once confess the truth, though I seem to boast, do not truly understand what others mean when they say, forget, for it seems to me that all experience becomes a part of my being. I only slept and was carried there. He wakes up in a journeyman's cabin. He's still really drunk. For the first time, he has his own room, but it's a very small cabin. The height is greater than its width. Being the youngest journeyman, he gets the worst cabin. Quote, a portless cubbyhole no larger than a cell. He's too dizzy to get up, but he claims he's wide awake. He passes out and then wakes up again. And this next part is interesting. I was conscious that someone was in the tiny cabin with me. And for some reason, I could not have explained I thought it was the young woman who had taken the part of our patroness. He gets up. There's a bit of light in the room coming from under the door so he can see. No one is there. It's hard to imagine that anyone could be in this small cabin. He lays down again. Now he smells Thecla's perfume, burning rose, remember. So he figures the false Thecla from House Azure is nearby. It's not even conceivable to him that the real Thecla could be there. He gets up. 
staggers to the door, opens it, but no one is in the passageway. He vomits his dinner and wine into the chamber pot under his bed, and he puts it outside the door. Somehow, I felt what I had done was treason, as if by casting out all the guild had given me that night, I had cast out the guild itself. Coughing and sobbing, I knelt beside the bed, and at last, after wiping my mouth clean, lay down again. This is foreshadowing, I suppose, right? Now he dreams of the chapel, but it's not a ruined chapel. The roof is like new, and there are ruby lamps hanging from it. The pews are like new and gleam with polish. The ancient stone altar is draped in gold. There's a mosaic behind the altar, but it's just blue tiles, no picture. He says, as if a fragment of sky without cloud or star had been torn away and spread upon the curving wall. As he walks down the aisle toward it, he notes how much lighter it is than the actual sky. Remember that with the dying sun, they are all in a kind of a perpetual twilight during the day. You can see stars all the time. He says the actual sky is nearly black, even on the brightest day. His sins starts to rise, and he looks down on the altar, and he sees a cup of red wine and, quote, showbread and antique knife. And this, of course, is a, you know, a Eucharist setting. The, the term showbread is, is Jewish, by the way. In the Jerusalem temple, it was offered at the altar and eaten by the priests. It's interesting that Severian knows that word. In his sleep, he hears footsteps in the passage outside. He knows he recognizes them, but he can't recall who it is. He wakes up and tries to remember the sound. He says, it was no human tread, only the padding of soft feet and an almost imperceptible scraping. And then he hears it again, very faint. He almost thinks he imagines it, but it was real, slowly coming up the passageway and then slowly going back. But he's consumed with nausea, so he falls back on the pillow. He doesn't care who is out there. Thecla's perfume is gone. As he lays there, quote, My door opened a trifle, and Master Malrubius looked in as though to make certain I was all right. I waved to him, and he shut the door again. It was some time before I recalled that he had died while I was still a boy. And it's that last line that really makes this even weirder than everything else. Yeah, yeah. It's a ghost story. It is. Or is it? All right, well, let's let's work backwards from this. Right. First of all, the soft padding that he hears outside, that's Triskely, right? Aquaster, Triskely, and Malrubia. Right, so... Right. So we do find out later that, you know, you know, Marubius and Triskley are going to come at him many times. And just to throw something out here at the beginning of Claw the Conciliator, he has a dream about Malrubius and the dog. And here's what he says. This is in the very like third paragraph of Claw the Conciliator. I drew Terminus S to cut down those between us and found I was about to strike Master Malrubius, who stood calmly, my dog Triskley at his side in the midst of the tumult. Seeing him so, I knew I dreamed. And from that knew, even while I slept, that the visions I had had of him before had not been dreams. Uh -huh, yeah. When he says that at the beginning of Claw, it's as if he said, okay, and I had a, I was in the middle of a dream and I had a dream of Malrubius and Triskley. Well, at the end of Shadow, we have a long conversation with mm -hmm. Malrubius. But what he says here is that all the other times he had seen him, he knew it wasn't a right. dream. It's sort of like he just had this feeling. He 
knew. What that would mean is that this is not a dream. Uh, he actually saw Malrubius and Triscoli or encountered them. That's right. Now, yeah, so the idea here, and, you know, we're, of course, we're talking about stuff way at the end, but we find out that Malrubius and Triscoli are aquasters, which are actual physical, I think, if I'm remembering and thinking about this correctly, sort of actual physical beings that are created by some, you know, massive future tech uh, from someone's memories or their imagination. Right. And that these things are, these aquasters are being used to communicate and sort of watch over Severian by the high rows and the high regrammas and, and that whole big alien future human evolution right. thing. So what that would mean here is that Malrubius would want to look in and make sure that Severian is okay at this point, which means that something about this whole thing, this whole chapter, apart from, of course, you know, being a big thing in Severian's life, also apparently some pretty significant things are going on that the powers that be needed to check on Severian real quick exactly and make sure that he was there now that's not a theory that's you know that's pretty much what you can figure out from the plot <laughs> so um i want to point that out um now the actual meaning of that that could be something right else. but yeah so what what sense do you have of why malrubius would on this night of all nights being looking in i don't know I, possibly well okay that coming just before this he gets the dream mm -hmm. about the chapel and, right. you know, it's not hard to understand this. It's, it's kind of a dream of the new sun, of what it would be like when that you don't live under a dying sun anymore, that this old ruined world would be made new. But the thing is, he sees a sky and recognizes a sky in the mosaic that he's never seen in his life. Mm -hmm. It's not what he thinks of as a sky. He's never seen that kind of blue in the sky, but he knows that that's a blue sky. Mm -hmm. So... Perhaps they are there to send him a dream. It, now, that could, that's something else that we could think about that's going on. That could be it. Just to point out, too, one thing in that dream, you know, he's looking down on an altar, down into a cup of wine, down upon shoe bread. Yeah. And an antique knife. Now, I did. Oh, shoot. Look, I forgot to look up shoe bread. I had meant to do that. It's a, it's a term from the Jewish temple. Okay. So it is. I don't know of the term ever being used in a Christian context. Um, but obviously, it's like, you know, the bread. Oh yeah. All the, all the things of the, of the Eucharist, they are derived from symbology right. in Jewish rituals as well. Okay, good. I just wanted to check and make sure that, you know, that the, the wafers were actually <laughs> called bread at some point, not being Catholic. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, so the image he has is first of all, of this beautiful day where it's like he says, a true sky, which is blue. One thing I did read someone saying that, you know, we think of this as like what the sun would be like, or what the sky would be like if the sun had been like that. Someone else pointed out that this is also kind of how Severian describes the Assad in Earth of the Nation oh, yeah. with that, that, that blue. So that could be, but I think it's safer to think of this just as, you know, like a, a day for right. us when the sun is powerful. Um, yeah. And of course it's connected with that sharing of the Eucharist in which you share in the body and the blood of the savior. And so is that, is the Eucharist, is that the body of earth? Is that the idea there that, it, that earth gives up its body in order to have a resurrected ushus? That's kind of how the rest of the story is going to be playing out. No. Yeah. 
You know, I feel like that's, if you're really going to try and carry over how do the symbols line up, that seems to be right. Now, the the idea that that is actually, you know, that we go that far in this little moment, I don't know, you know, because there's not a real sense of a sacrifice. There's just that sort of celebration of, you know, being in the ritual. Right. So I don't know if I would take it quite that far, but but he just talks about how beautiful this image is. You know, it's it's something that's sort of overwhelming and uh, as if he's floating, as if he's he's high above things, that everything is beautiful, that there's the this wonderful ritual about to be prepared. But the fact that Malrubius and might be there to bring him that dream and sort of show him an image of what the, the good future could be, that could be. If so, I'm not really sure exactly what that dream does for Severian at this point. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of like an image of hope. But I'm not sure. But obviously, it's it's being communicated to him. There's nothing from his own mind and memory that he could he could have derived these symbols, right? Yeah, because he says that he noticed that it was the chapel, but it's so different right. than anything he's ever seen before. There is a different possibility that I think is is trickier to get to, but it has to do with other theories about Catherine. Um, and this isn't something that I've necessarily seen out there, but if, so we'll, we'll sort of start a string of this. Curiositas Urthus. We'll get into who Catherine's identity later on, but if something about the ritual is where Severian has had to interact with possibly his mother for the last time, possibly to have killed her. And possibly even to have resurrected her, uh -huh. which is a theory that people put out there. Then Malrubus coming and checking on him would perhaps be a way to say, is he doing okay now? Is he still, <laughs> you know, has he realized something? Has he figured something out? Did he get the dream? Yeah, did he get the dream? And so it could be more like checking on him and making sure, okay, is he still in the room there? Has he left? And that's one thing that I, I was wondering, like, that's more about them making sure that he hasn't gone out to you know, explore and try and figure things out mm. more than maybe they, they want to be. Now, I don't know. I mean, there's so many speculations there. And instead, it I feel like in the long run, what that section does is just set us up to know that Malrubius and Triskel are going to be weird. Um, and that, that there's something, there's something else going on. Like, I feel like in the long run, that makes the most sense that their presence here is just to kind of, not just to be weird, but to make us know, okay, there's other stuff going on <laughs> in Severian's right. life and right at this point beyond just his story of coming out. But so, yeah. So if someone else has a different idea of what Malrubius would be doing here, why the Equoster would need to come at this point mm -hmm. in the story, I would like to hear it because I don't have a good answer. You know, this is hardly ever mentioned really um, for, for maybe because it's just so weird. Thecla's perfume. Could the Autark and his Kaibits be coming over for a visit? Or maybe it's really Thecla? That doesn't seem possible. It's surely the false Thecla, but, you know. Yeah, the false Thecla is always the one who where he has the the smell, right? Is where is always where it comes. Right? Well, yeah, we guess, yeah. But she couldn't get out. But obviously, he knows her perfume. I mean, yeah, because Thecla in the prison wouldn't have the actual. But then, where? yeah, right. Where would she get new perfume? I don't know. Has the Malrubius Aquaster come from House Azure? And that's why he smells it? Does that suggest a connection with Father Inire and 
whatever is going on with the house is your, I don't know. Um, the perfume confuses me. I got to admit on this part, like why? Yeah. Well, I think that's why people don't really, you know, try to take that one on because you need to really come up with an explanation in order to, for, for why everyone's there before, before you can decide who's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another possibility could be that it's not perfume from the false Thecla or from like physically coming from the house azure. There could be a little mental time travel going on possibly. And Mm -hmm. maybe, yeah, maybe he doesn't actually smell it. But yeah, but that's, you know, that's so speculative. I just don't know. So finally, Mm -hmm. there's that girl who plays Catherine, that he has a sense that she was there in that room with him. So I guess we're going to talk about this girl finally. Before we take her on, are there any other bizarre puzzles in there that you want to address? My only thing with that one point where he says he thought it was the young woman, my thought was maybe that was actually Mel Rubio's. And he was just, you know, in his drunken stupor, he sort of connected that it was huh. there. And so he was wrong about who he thought it might be, but that perhaps it was the Malrubius Equester that appeared hmm. at that point. So let's, let's talk about the girl. What, let's talk about all the theories that have to do with her. The, oh my goodness. <laughs> the most famous theory, of course, is from, from Michael Andre Drisi. Uh, it's summarized in the Lexicon Earthist and expanded into two separate articles in Alton's library. It, it goes like this. We know, or we think we do, that Severian's mother was named Catherine with a C. And Michael theorized that this maid playing Catherine with a K was Severian's mother, Catherine with a C. He theorized that Catherine made use of the tunnels underneath the tower and came from the atrium of time every year to take part in the ceremony. I think the presumption here is that time there moves slower than the outside. Seems to be. So why does his mother do this? Presumably, you know, to be close to Severian. So at some point she went down those tunnels and back and showed up each year at the Feast of Holy Catherine to take part in the ceremony. Now, look, the tunnels are there at the tower. And it's called the Atrium of Time, although we've never actually seen anyone time travel through them deliberately with a purpose. We assume it's possible. Right. And just to point out, just be careful, (laughs) those of you listening and really liking this theory, because this is another one of those theories that is literally speculation stacked on a speculation stacked on a speculation. Because like we talked about in that chapter. Sure. Those tunnels might be nothing at all, but just old tunnels under there. There's no absolute verification that that some kind of weird time travel does actually happen with them. That's a good point. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, Michael is definitely convinced that they are. So that then lets him move on to this next theory. Now, there might be other ways that Catherine could still be his mother, even if. Um, but but think about this with those tunnels. There's that St. Gildas reference with the tunnels. Right, right. So I do find that enticing. Yeah. When you had mentioned that, because I did not know that. And then you brought that one up. That one, that was fun to me because it started to maybe give a little, just another connection to how the tunnels might actually be something a little more important. Right. Let's see. There's the theory that the girl who plays Catherine is a robot, as we mentioned. Why isn't she stored in the attic with the wheel, if Mm -hmm. that's the case? Um, That would also kind of explain how she can appear to not have a head and walk over and put uh her back on. 
yeah, right. That solves that a little bit. Maybe she's pretending to do a practical illusion, but she's really yeah. And so yeah, but that it is is very Wolfian, very uh, Borgian to have have con men pretending to be con men and actually doing what they're doing. So that that would that's not out of character with the writer we're dealing with. Um, what else we got? Well, do we want to get into actual extreme theories and curiosities? We, I don't see any reason to look back now. So, <laughs> all right, well then here we go. Curiositas Urthus. Curiositas Urthus. Curiositas Urthus. All right. Do you want to go first or do you want me to? Let me hear what yours is. All right. Well, mine is a version of um, the Catherine is his mother theory, but it is part of a much more detailed connection to Severian's family tree. Okay. So this is uh, something by um, B Sharp who was a big participant on the earth list and still posts a lot in Reddit. Hey, that's Lee Berman, a regular contributor on Reddit and the Gene Wolf Appreciation Facebook page. Uh, he's earth lister from way back. He's a master theorist after my own heart. Lots of good stuff. This one though, I liked it. It's an old earth list post where uh, this is from actually from 2006 uh, lays out an entire family tree of Severian um, that's different from Borsky. I know that Borsky, of course, in Solo Labyrinth had a whole ton of different um, speculations about who could be parts of Severian's family. But what I like about this post, and you know what, I'm going to stick a, a link to it up there because it's it's way more detailed than I could have. It has every person. It's got Severian's twin. It's got another set of twin brothers and sisters. It's got all of this and, and it ties it back to Catherine in this section. So um, one thing that I thought was cool here is that it also suggests that Syriaca, who we know from the beginning of the sort of elector, she's the one, uh-huh. she's an art, she's an armiger or, or something yeah. along those lines. Um, that he, she's the woman who he's told that he has to go kill and then he saves her. But one thing we find out about her is that she had been a member of the Pelerines for a while and left. We're also told at the end of Citadel that Catherine, this Catherine with a C, had also been a member of the Pelerines and mm-hmm. had left. Ceremonial order is what it says, but... Exactly, yeah. But the only one we've known is the Pelerines. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So... The thing that he has here is that Catherine is Syriaca's sister, that they had both been twins, both by Dorcas, or shoot, not twins, but they had both been sisters, one from Dorcas, one possibly from someone else, but that they had been together. And so then Syriaca is also Severian's aunt. And I, I just wanted to throw that in. There's a lot more detail that he goes in to figure out all these different relationships it's basically a really ingenious theory where we get any semi-major character that Severian's interacted with becomes related to him in one way or another. And it's over the top kind of thing where, where, you know, it's fun when we find out that Dorcas is his grandmother, but it's kind of going to the point where almost everyone that he interacts with might actually be related in certain ways. 
ways. And just I, the one thing I thought was fun here was because of that detail that we learn about Catherine and because of, of Syriaca, that there are connections there that tie their experiences together and make them both connected. In this case, Catherine is not the, the one difference about the way he talks about it is Catherine isn't then, you know, stuck in time and coming back. It's just that, that for whatever reason, she seemed young to Severian. Mm. But yeah, I thought it was fun. It was a fun way to, to tie her yeah. to all these other things. So like I said, I'll put a link in the show notes to that post. Okay. So I'm going to tell you when we smelled Thecla's perfume and we speculated that, you know, that it's the, the Kybet, you know, my first thought was, okay, the Autarchs coming here, but then Severian also thought about, thought the girl was in the room there. And yeah, I, I try to take all of as many of these things that uh, Severian says or senses, and I try to accept them as true and try to make them all true. So when this, I read this, this, especially this last time, I hate to say this, but the most straightforward construction that I would make of this from this alone is that the girl who played Catherine has also become the autark who is also the pimp at the house Azure and is showing up with his <laughs> false Thecla yeah. to check on, on Sumerian. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet. First of all, if Catherine with a K, if the maid is, is Severian's mother, why does Severian need to be raised by the torturers? Why not just raise him in the atrium of time along with his mom? Mm-hmm. And, you know, anyway, unless Catherine is some, with a C, is some person of authority, why does Palamon and Gurluise have a reason to defer to her and have her, a former client, play Catherine every year. Is there any hint of that, what that might be in the text? And then there's the description of this girl, as we mentioned. She has dark hair, fine. She's also noticeably dark complected. And and Severian is not just white, he's whitey, white, white, white. Thecla says people remark on her pale skin, but she says that she's tan compared to Severian. And that doesn't work for me as his mother, particularly since Owen, Severian's father, is not remarked on as being especially pale. He does say he never sees her again, right? He never saw the maid again. So that would that would be a big problem if Catherine is the autark. So plus wouldn't he have recognized her from the house of Jure as well? I don't know. There's questions. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And the strangest part of this is that Severian knows, or at least can very easily find out who this girl is as he's writing this. He's Autark. He records this as if it never occurred to him to ask. And maybe it didn't, but he does, however, have an interest in identifying his parentage. He tracks down Owen. This girl's identity is as confusing to me as the Autarchs. I know that there's something there just off curtain, but nothing yet has occurred to me that is probable, including that she's his mother. I can already hear all the out there. So James, you find Clute's theory that the Autarch is Severian's mother credible, but you don't find it credible that this mysterious girl named Catherine 
with a K, could be Severian's mother, Catherine with a C. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. But you know what? Let's let's just set aside the girl's dark complexion. Okay. What if? What if? Listen, okay, listen, Craig, before I say anything, you know I'm not crazy about any theory regarding this chapter. None of it makes total sense to me. I I acknowledge, as some listener has said, that the natural dynamic here is that you're Scully and I'm Mulder on a really up day. <laughs> Still, I'm not spending all week thinking, Whoa, wait till Craig gets a load of this. His head is going to explode. <laughs> I promise you, there's nothing I present here during our time that I don't consider reasonable to some extent. This time is sacred to me. Please, please, please remember that for the next few minutes. Sure. I shall. And to, I will say too, I may be a bit of a Scully. It's not a disrespectful Scully. It is a Scully who does want to carefully consider all of the things and <laughs> who is skeptical in the sense of a good enlightenment skeptic who doesn't want to be skeptical just for the sake of being skeptical, but skeptical for the sake of wolf yes. to figure out <laughs> you know, all that. That's it. That's it. Yes. Okay. Well, Scully, prepare to do an autopsy because we're going <laughs> to. So. All that said, I acknowledge that this one, the one I'm about to detail, has a certain strain of mania running through it. But this is not my fault. Wolf left me these disassembled parts and an assurance that they all fit together. And I'm just trying to put these disparate pieces together, people. Don't blame the player. Blame the game. <laughs> okay, here we go. Oh, wait, Craig. Do you remember the first chapter in our talk? And we had our very first Curiositus Earthus. Mm -hmm. And you explained that the point of presenting these theories is not to make fun of them because, frankly, they might end up being true. Mm -hmm. yep. You remember what our first Curiositus Earthus entry was? Oh, shoot. I don't. <laughs> what, what, it, oh. was, it was that the body they dug out of that grave oh, oh, in oh. chapter one yes. was Severian's mother. Yes. It was actually a theory, once again, by B Sharp. Okay, here we go. What if the girl is Catherine with a C, mm -hmm. Severian's mother? What if she is important because, and only because, she gave birth to Severian and his sister? Or better, will give birth to them in seven months or so? What if... That's why the autarch slash Father Aniri had her picked up after she and Owen had been together for a while. And then, uh, okay, there's a big blank space here, but they know she's going to die in childbirth. But Father Aniri lets her see Severian grow up by letting her take part in the annual feast, every feast in a single day. And then, bigger plot gap here, they bury her in the future in the necropolis. Notice that the grave Votalist dug up is not the grave of a client because it is buried in the potter's field. And that is why it is worth Votalist going to, quote, the swamps of Nessus 
to get his hands on her body. And then, because the Autark has infiltrated the rebellion, he gets a taste of that body. Actually, his past self is given a taste of the body. Now, before I'm done, you're probably going to object that this is a weirdo timeline. But remember that Father Aniri and the old Autark and Severian, these people live outside of time for all intents and purposes. Oh, I just realized that an important part of Catherine's story is the emperor reaching out to her, uh, offering, making an offer of marriage. Oh, it just makes well, you know, the the story of Catherine and the autark right there. So, this brings us to the night of Severian's elevation. The old autark goes to visit Severian on the night of his elevation with the false Thecla. And the Catherine girl, Severian's mother, is there too, just as Severian thought. She's inside the autark. And that's why Severian sensed that she was there. Shortly after that, he smells Thecla's perfume. And that's why the autark is androgynous. Severian is sometimes mistaken for a woman because of Thecla, but he's never mistaken for a child due to all the children in his mind. For a person to show up in someone's features, I think it has to be someone more recent, someone more one-to-one than the way it is with, you know, with all the, just the previous autarchs, a line of autarchs in Severian's mind. So maybe the old autarch even drowns himself in Catherine's persona, as one of the Vodaleri put it. And this is why the autarch hangs out in the house Azure. So Catherine can be near Severian. And that is why Autark Severian never goes looking for his mother, as he does with his father. He knows what became of his mother. She's with him. And he explains why, even though his mother can take part in the feasts every year, she doesn't raise him. So the Autark can be Severian's mother. He can come off as a woman. The exhumed corpse has a name. The guild's deference to Catherine is explained. We know why Gerlois agreed, but not readily agreed, to let Severian live after he betrayed the guild. If the Autark were his mother, there'd be no question that they couldn't execute him. But because they know that although Severian's mother isn't the Autark, she kind of is, they come to the conclusion that they can't execute him anyway. Also, they know she's kind of special to Aniri, of course. The issue of why the Autark is a woman, but a man, the question of why Vodalus is in the nearly dead part of the city of Nessus digging up a body, it's all explained. Now, there's one other question worth asking. James, you respond, they bury her in the future? Why do they do that? I think it is more likely that what happens is that they go to the past and retrieve the body and bury it after Severian's near-slash-actual drowning in the guile. Then they tip off Vodalus. The best reason I can imagine to do this is to plant a spy, not only among the Vodaleri, but in Vodalus's head. They want a way to ensure that Vodalus will not actually hurt Severian, as they've almost lost him already. His mother can protect him. Vodalus centers his movement around the ritual, in part to spy on House Absolute. But a spy in your midst is a chance to spy on the other side, because you can control what they know. 
And the spy will have to work exceptionally hard for your side to keep it from being revealed. Wolf addresses the spy paradox in the Book of the Long Sun. So they give some of Catherine's body to the old autark in the past. You know, the autark and Catherine would seem to have more than a passing connection as well they, to, for them to do all this for her. Perhaps it was a request from the past autark to his future self or to Father Aniri. If her body's going to be violated like this, uh, I'd like to have my old friend back in some form as well. So yeah, now this is, this is the most convoluted theory I've ever publicly presented. <laughs> some longtime Earth listers might dispute whether it is the most convoluted theory, but it's way up there. It requires a good deal of time manipulation, as does any K equals C theory, but it is time manipulation by people who do it all the time. And we finally get a motivation for all the extra work that everyone contributes. Uh, you know, Craig, you'd be surprised how simple a wolf story can become if you just assume everyone is the same person. <laughs> uh, oh, and remember... I gave a warning some time ago that once you embrace a theory, you start seeing co-conspirators in the tasks. Mm -hmm. Well, keep in mind the recent discussions of the parallels between the book of the new sun and Dickens' great expectations. So when Pip goes to the cemetery and is forced into league with a criminal at the beginning of great expectations, whose grave is he at? Well, among others, his mother's. Also, remember that I believe Olten is a Vodalari and fed on that corpse that Vodalus and his gang were resurrecting. And that is why Severian sees her summoned when he looks at Olten at that time. Well, during that conversation, Olten initiates a little discussion about how a son resembles his father. That's because, you know, Speculation on top of speculation. Catherine inside him looks at Severian and knows who he is because she sees the face of Owen. Okay, fine. Truth and illusion always look the same from the inside. But an illusion implies an objective reality. So just because my new theory helps confirm my old theory is not a disqualification. So I got to admit, there are a lot of things about this I actually really like. Ah, um, The first thing, honestly, that I really like is the idea that Catherine is within, is doing this all in one day, that she's getting to see Severian grow up all in one day. Mm. That's really cool. That's a good story there. It's like, it's in the theory. One thing that often happens in the speculative theories is that they make connections and distinctions between things, but they don't actually tell a story. The reason I like this is that it seems more like Wolf in that it's telling a story about how she gets to see her son grow up. And so that in itself makes me want to sort of follow it a little bit more. Um, I have some questions. So if mm -hmm. Vodalus does then get to, to you know, eat Catherine, doesn't he then learn about the plots a bit around him? Or how much does she know about what's going on? Well, that would depend how much she knows. They may know that there is to be a new son. They are obviously they already know that. They know that she's important. Honestly, they would have to have some degree of mm -hmm. Severian's face 
in their memory, but they aren't Severian and these memories fade. So that may not be an yeah. issue by the time they actually meet Severian. I also like the fact that it explains why the Autark would be at the House Azure so much. Though that's one question that we had, and and then I think you should have is if that actually is the Autark who's going to the House Azure, as he says it is later on. Um, what's he doing there? Like, why there? That like we talked about back then that the the one thing that makes sense there is that he's getting to kind of keep an eye on Severian and that by that point you should probably know that Inere and the Autark know that Severian has sort of been chosen to be the next one and they're trying to, to get things organized in the right way and so it makes a little sense if that's what they're supposed to be doing is that's their their way to be close to Severian in Nessus but it still seems like such a strange way yeah um, but at least then that has a little bit more of an explanation of why he's there so much. So that part I like as well. Um, the next question I would have is why did those two get together? Yes, that's a good question <laughs> because that assumes a huge story. Well, that is, does assume a huge, very involved story. Yeah. And the thing is that I don't find that impossible with Wolf. I feel like he has very involved backstories that he doesn't bother to share. But that does implies that the Autark and Catherine would have mm -hmm. to have a very close personal relationship for some reason. And but that's and that story isn't related. But the the reason why she's being collected is because according to this theory, if Father Aniri knows who her children are going to be. So he doesn't care. Yeah. And that is, that is a bit of an out for that too, that if that with the time travel and the, the sort mm -hmm. of knowing the future and knowing who's good, supposed to be chosen, then it could be more a sense of how do you just, you know, get the people in the room and, and, right. you know, let them produce who they need to produce. That could be, I mean, plus two, we know that this, this autark was a beekeeper when he was younger. Right. And so he was a laborer and, and a servant in some form. So it's not uncommon then that he would be with someone of that class, you know, of a, of a lower class. We know that he has a past and he might well have a past that intersects with uh, Catherine as a Pellerine or some other format capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's how she might've met him if they were, if the Pellerines were wandering around. But and that's not important. That's not that part's not necessarily because that's getting like how did they meet? How did they fall in love? How did they have kids? That's all. Yeah, that's. That. But you know what? I, I would have considered that to be crazy to think that that would be anything that mm -hmm. Wolf had recorded, until I began to work out my yeah. explanation for the fifth head of Cerberus. To to me, I realized that there's all this huge backstory yeah. for that first novella, that as far as we know, he had no intention yeah. of explaining although there is something else this is a very weak speculation but because the old autark is a beekeeper bees of course make honey but the other thing they do is they pollinate <laughs> <laughs> and you know the bee you make pollination happen you make reproduction happen oh so he's like the bee between owen and Catherine. could be could be hmm well We'll put this one on the shelf. I don't know what to say. I, I... 
Well, there's okay. So it it is it is very complicated, and it does have a lot of specular pieces. But like I said, the one thing I do like about it is that it actually has a story inside of it. And I think the best of the sort of hidden wolf puzzles aren't ones that are just sort of like, oh, this this person has a mythic or symbolic resonance and therefore it connects to this for some good allegorical reason or something like that. I feel like the best ones are the ones that are actually sort of hidden stories. And that one does kind of have a good hidden story with a bit of a drama and a and a sort of reason for it to happen. So I like it. I, I, I'll admit I'm not sold, but I actually like it. I think it's a fun. It's really, I got to admit for as far as the, the sort of complicated theories go, it actually tells a story, which is why I like it mm-hmm. because so many of the theories are just sort of connections where the, the theory doesn't necessarily have a, a drama to it, but the way that you told it, it actually does make a character of Catherine and, and sort of give her, you know, give her a little pathos and give her a little, I kind of like that part. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, but it's worth thinking about because it also, I don't know, it's kind of weird how I'm sitting here thinking about how we know so little about that character. And yet we've sat here and kind of come up with a drama for her. Like we've yeah. come up with a story about her from speculation, which that just feels more like what Wolf would really like the puzzles to do, right? Like not to just be sort of intellectual things, but to actually have stories buried within stories. And that's, that's so much more what I feel like he really wanted his things to be like. So, yeah. So I like that. I like that a lot. So I don't know that I'm convinced, but I really like it. There's some timey wimey stuff in there that it bothers me, but it does, it, it solves so many things. (laughs) Well, it's it, the weakest part, the weakest part. I mean, the, one of the nice things about it is that it explains why Catherine was arrested. Why would they really you know, send her off to the tower because she ran away from the Pellerines? But the it's the, the hardest part is the timey-wimey stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, we're going to go and mm-hmm. yeah. take her body and put it where Vodalus can get at it to protect Severian. That makes sense. But then you got to get the, you got to get her part of the body back to the old emperor because according to the theory, that's why he's androgynous, right? Right. Because he's got so much of Catherine in him. Yeah. And that's a different reason from having the different autarchs and yeah. So, well, I give you lots of props and kudos for a (laughs) very complicated detailed version. I don't want to say Borsky esque because <laughs> it, because it's not as speculative, um, but because it actually does try to make some real connections between things. So, but yeah, that's impressive, James. Well, that one's impressive. it is what I do. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would definitely be interested in any other ideas about Catherine, about this young woman. Um, we've all been sticking here primarily with the, the connections to her as Severian's mother. There are a few other things out there um, that she has different ways that might not be actually his mother. There are some other theories about how she uh, connects to this, but if anyone has any other favorite speculations, please let us know. We would love to find out. Yeah. And you can send those speculations via email to rereading wolf at gmail.com or on the Facebook group rereading wolf 
Or, uh, you know, if you've got a short one, <laughs> you can put it to us on Twitter at RereadingWolf. And you can drop your really long speculations on Reddit, of course, at the Rereading Wolf podcast mm-hmm. Reddit site. And if you've got a, a picture that explains everything, just uh, send me one on the Instagram account. Yep. A nice little flow chart would be preferable. <laughs> so please, with all the family trees clearly indicated and reasoning why and figure out some nice easy way to figure out all the time travel that would have to be involved as well to make things work. I finally got all the episodes up on the YouTube channel, uh, which if you're listening to this on YouTube, you already know. If you don't, the link to it is in the show notes. So no extra video visuals for that. If you're listening on the regular podcast, so you won't have to brace yourself for the way we look. Right. <laughs> right. It's just another way that we know a lot of people will listen to things. That's regularly. right. The other thing that's that's sort of funny is that we did have someone mention that they're in China and they can't get the podcast, but they can get YouTube. Yeah. And that was pretty, well, not cool. <laughs> I guess <laughs> the, the situation that brings about that, that about is not exactly cool, but, but it's cool that they could get actually get to it that way. Um, but yeah, we just know it's a, a way that people look at things. I, honestly, one of the reasons I thought about doing it was because that's how my, the one of my sons listens to podcasts on YouTube, just because he's always on YouTube. And so he'll stumble onto something that way. So figured it's not a ton of work. So why don't we stick it up there just in case? Well, that's a hard one. There's, this is such a weird chapter in certain ways um, because it spawns so many theories, because there are a lot of things that are suggestive. And I feel like Wolf wrote this one in ways that does suggest all kinds of things without actually giving good clues to how to, how to, un, how to solve the puzzle. So, you know, honestly, when I step all the way back, I still feel a bit like this is one of those chapters where the main outcome I feel like he's trying to say is there's a lot more important going on to Severian. Yeah. Um, and this is the first, one of the first chapters where I feel like you get a sense that other things are important about Severian that we don't know. And that Malrubia shows up in these strange dreams that he has and just the weirdness with the, the ritual and the young girl, it just gives you a suggestion that there are other things going on that Severian doesn't exactly know. Like the fact that this girl might've come back year after year and that these, this ghost of his old master is showing up. All of those things I feel like in the, as far as just the first time you're reading it and the real narrative thrust, it's kind of saying Severian is belonging to a bigger story. That I feel like is the real, real core. This is definitely where you get to the point where you say there is a story going here, you know, off to the side, but I don't know what it is. And yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, the other thing too, that we didn't go into a ton of depth about, but, but just with that ritual, um, with the dream that is about the Eucharist, it's also one of the strongest connections to there's some strong Christian and specifically Catholic imagery that's being used in this story. And this is the real first place where I wish I brought up the, the mediator uh, reference from, uh, I think it's Titus or Timothy where Christ is called the mediator. And I think that's pretty much where the term conciliator is actually being drawn from. Oh, conciliator. Yes. But as a mediator between God and man, one mediator between God and man and which kind of an idea of him ascending and he's between earth and heaven. And I don't know resonates with me yeah 
that's one thing that I'm, I've been sitting here as we're talking about this. We're kind of all deep in the weeds with these, these theories behind the scenes in this one. But I feel like the first time I read it, this was actually the first time when I was like, oh, <laughs> this is kind of a uh-huh. specifically Catholic book, or at least with all the imagery and the suggestions. Not anything necessarily theologically about it, but right. this was the first chapter where it really hit home oh, I should really be looking for those things. I should really be paying attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you actually get the story of Catherine, who is a real saint and is a famous one that people will know about. Um, and then you get that Eucharist at the end. Those are are the first big clues. I feel like that when you're just sort of speaking in the what you're supposed to be paying attention to, this is where he really calls attention to it. Well, good. Like we said, we've done a lot in speculation this time. So if it's been hard to follow, especially if you've only read it once and aren't sort of steeped in a lot of these theories, we apologize, but do go ahead, take a look at that link that I'll put up for the one B sharp theory that I think is good. And let us know if anything in here is just absolutely ridiculous that we've been (laughs) talking about, or if there's something that made you think about something else, or if you had a different idea. Um, Particularly, honestly, with this one, I would be interested in, especially anyone who has a little more knowledge of sort of Catholic traditions Mm. and Catholic imagery, how did that dream feel about the Eucharist? Like, like, does it just, just any reactions to that one, I would definitely be interested in. Yeah. Well, good. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. Great. Varian will become a headsman when he's exiled. Well, I'm not sure why I say that. (laughs) Take that out.